0: Hello there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Britain's first steps as a newly independent country, a new African free trade zone, and a powder keg in the Middle East. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news so there were 70 civilians killed in a militant attack on two villages in Niger we could read that country's name a very different way but we're gonna use Niger Uh, cars were set ablaze in Strasbourg France on New Year's Eve an Indian quadcopter drone uh, one of those small drones that you uh, may have seen used in YouTube videos Uh, used this time for military surveillance purposes, was shot down over Pakistan. Uh, Ten people have been arrested in an attack on Hindu temples in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has, well, while we're still talking about Pakistan, uh, they have canceled 200,000 fake national identity cards that Afghan refugees were trying to use to gain citizenship in Pakistan. And while we're on the subject of Afghanistan, the Taliban has kidnapped 45 bus passengers in western Afghanistan. But moving back to the Pakistan region, India and Pakistan have exchanged a list of nuclear installations and facilities. Uh, This is a part of their mutual agreement on the prohibition of attacks against nuclear installations and facilities. Uh, The 1st of January every year is what they agreed, is the date that they agreed to do this uh, exchange. And the 1st of January was a couple days ago, on Friday. So I hope everybody had a good New Year's Eve, and New Year's, you know. Probably got drunk, but but it's a good time, good time. It's nice to have something nice. Uh in 2020, and nice to say goodbye to 2020, Uh, perhaps the longest year in modern human history. You know, there's even debate now as to whether or not it was the worst year of human history, but I'd say that it was up there, but, you know, 1939 and 1914 are uh, pretty good contenders, I would say, you know, good good runner-ups. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but, um, moving on, uh, they have, oh, on India and Pakistan, they have also exchanged the list of, uh, the other civilian prisoners in their possession. Uh, let me, uh, try to explain that better. So, prisoners, um, that are of Pakistan, so, Pakistan citizen prisoners that are in India are exchanged and sent back to Pakistan in exchange for Indians who were imprisoned in Pakistan. So they're exchanging prisoners at the same time that they're exchanging the list of their nuclear sites and facilities. There we go, that should uh, better summarize what's happening here. So, nice to see that there's at least some de-escalation, even if it's more of a ritual. Uh, And by ritual, I mean more of a yearly thing. That they do anyway, but it's nice to see that they're still going along with that, even at the midst of these tensions where they're crossing their disputed border uh, in the Kashmir region, which is a mountainous region. It's pretty interesting how the, the Himalayan mountains, you'd think that if there was ever a natural barrier, that it would be easy to establish a boundary between you and someone else. It would be the Himalayas, but you have all these border conflicts in the Himalayas, not just with uh, India and Pakistan, but with India and China as well. So, we'll, we'll take a break from China today. Uh, maybe they'll do something in the future that'll grab our attention again. But, for the meantime, we're going to take a bit of a journey further west. Not all the way to the west, but to the Middle East. So we're going to start with Azerbaijan, uh, a country that is uh, at this point a personal favorite of mine. The episodes I've done on it has been done really very well. So Azerbaijan has begun natural gas exports to Europe via the Trans Adriatic Pipeline. Uh, now the Europeans view this as diversification of their energy supply. Uh, diversification away from the Russian dominated market Um, but those of you who have been following this podcast closely or just that news story in particular know that Russia effectively controls Azerbaijan's natural gas right now because Russia controls the country Uh, 4,000 quote-unquote peacekeepers who are supposed to leave in five years We're not, you and I both, I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna stop right there. And you and I both know that they're not going anywhere. Uh, so anyway, uh, the Republic of Azerbaijan, well, the new state in the Russian Federation named conveniently Azerbaijan has begun natural gas exports to Europe. The Europeans see it as diversification, but we know differently. Um, (laughs) Russia I'm just I'm just really thinking about that situation where they're trying to diversify away from Russia but a turn of events that they couldn't have predicted because this pipeline had to have been approved and begun construction years ago and they were intending to diversify their supply away from Russia but now due to these events that have transpired in just a couple months ago, They've effectively given Russia greater access to their natural gas market via a whole separate country. Cause nobody knew that there was gonna be another war that soon, or that the Russians were gonna literally occupy the two countries this time. So that's a that's a very unfortunate twist and turn of events for the Europeans. Now the Russians have even stronger influence over their natural gas markets, because and I say that because if Russia decided that Azerbaijan wasn't going to export to Europe, they would. <laughs> there, there wouldn't be much Azerbaijan could do to stop them at this point. So, anyway, now that Russia controls the European natural gas market, um, we're going to move on to other pipelines, uh, namely the Balkan section of the Turkstream pipeline, uh, another pipeline going from Russia. Uh, to Europe, uh, this is for Southern Europe, the Turk Stream, and the, the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline that Azerbaijan had uh, is also Southern Europe as well, but it goes through the the sea that is between Italy and the Balkans, so if you look on a map and you find Italy, that little body of water straight to Italy's east, that's the Adriatic Sea, so uh, that's where that pipeline goes through. So, Southern Europe is getting lots of juicy Russian natural gas, um, and the Balkan section of the Turkstream pipeline has been allowed by the Serbian president to pass through Serbia en route to Hungary. Now, first, I thought that um, it was going to be the other way around, where Russia was sending natural gas to Hungary, and Hungary was going to allow the gas to go to Serbia, but it appears it's going to be the other way around. and And if, now that I'm looking at the map here, it's no surprise why there's a a pretty big Ukraine in the way of Russian natural gas pipelines going from Russia to Hungary, and more importantly, there's a little strip of the Carpathian Mountains in between, so it is probably actually easier and more politically convenient to go around Ukraine, uh, go through Turkey, through Bulgaria, through serbia and then get to hungary than to just send it straight through ukraine but should the russians uh i don't know find themselves in possession of the ukraine i'd imagine that they would start building pipelines directly to their end markets and cut the turks out of the deal entirely because the turks are going to get money from the gas going through their territory so uh should the russians ever and find themselves and I'm using air quotes here find themselves in control of the entire Ukraine uh, somehow some way they're probably going to build pipelines directly to their end markets and well they already have them through Ukraine to uh, northern and western Europe but they could use their direct border between the Ukraine and Hungary to go straight across the plains of Ukraine And cut Turkey out of the deal, should their relations ever get worse, and I'd imagine that they will in the future. So, long story short, all all these gas pipelines, all this energy politics, um, it's seeming to me that Russia is asserting, uh, well they're building a really strong influence in the southern, southeastern portion of Europe, uh, Namely, the Balkans. Uh, But Serbia itself has always been a pretty long-time ally of Russia. If for nothing else, they're both Slavic peoples, the ethnic Russians and the Serbians. So there's that uh, kinship. But politically speaking, Serbia has been a long-time ally of Russia. So there's that. And with these pipelines, Russia is setting themselves up in a really strong position uh, relative to Europe. Um, Because it doesn't matter too much if your uh, opponents have a really large GDP if they get all of their energy from you, and one day you decide that, you know, you're not getting that energy. That's the relative power of nations. And every little bit counts. So... Russia is getting stronger influence in the Balkans and with Turkey attached and I say Turkey is attached because the pipelines in question Both the Adriatic and the Turk stream pipelines both go through Turkish territory and Turkish waters This can be bypassed if the Russians own the Ukraine, but they don't quite own it. Not all of it yet Uh, I expect to see them make moves sometime in the future After properly digesting the Caucasus, And uh, when they do. Gain control of the Ukraine. And I anticipate that they will at some point. They're going to go. Again. Direct access to their end markets. And cut the Turks out of the deal. So for now. Turkey does have influence in the Balkans. Via Russia's pipelines. But that. So they can use that influence now. While it lasts. Because. The Russians will find ways, uh, once they have the Ukraine, are undoubtedly going to cut them out of that deal. That's all I'll I'll say on that. I'm repeating myself. So now, we're going to get into the meat. Alright, and we're going to start it with good old Britain. Now, uh, I'll tell you, I was pretty disappointed for a while. Uh, They were only just now talking about using the Royal Navy to police their waters with regards to fishing. And I'm, I'm just sitting here, you know, we all knew about the Royal Navy and the, how ruled Britannia and how they ruled the waves. And, you know, sitting back here now, looking at this situation, it's like, after four years, because Brexit, the vote happened in 2016, if you can believe it. After four years, Britain, An island country with next to no land border, a single land border, really, has taken this long to remember, not realize, but remember that they can use the Royal Navy to police their own waters like they did for hundreds of years. Oh, oh, Britain, oh, Britain. But anyway, they have made us all proud today, um, by deciding that they're going to, you know, use their navy to defend their waters, like a, like a normal country. So, anyway, four Royal Navy vessels have entered the English Channel. Now, originally, they were actually meant to serve in single-ship rotations, um... But an admiral decided that he was going to send all four in at the same time to send a strong message, and that is one hell of a message. I say that Britain is back. Britain is back. He decided to send in all four, uh, and we'll see where we go moving forward. I expect the British, now being on their own, are gonna start to really take this whole defense of their country uh, to heart. And they're probably gonna. We're probably gonna see a buildup of the Royal Navy. I know Boris Johnson had made moves to bring the shipbuilding industry back to Britain, and similar moves were made in the United States. But for Britain in particular, uh, shipbuilding is a key cornerstone of the British identity and naval tradition. So I expect. I expect a buildup of the Royal Navy. Maybe they'll. Maybe they'll build a massive 1,000-ship fleet and rule the waves again. Who knows? Uh, But for now, uh, all eyes are going to be on their two aircraft carriers. Their super carriers, I should say. I'll correct. The other one is still um, in trials, I believe. Either that or it hasn't even been fully completed yet. But the HMS Queen Elizabeth, the flagship of the Queen Elizabeth class, which is their super carrier class right now, uh, is currently en route to the South china Sea. now the the British have gotten blowback politically from the Chinese who really would appreciate not having uh, another country sending supercarriers to the South China Sea. Um, but hey, I'd, what are you what are you gonna do? China it has carriers, but not quite super carriers. Um, But an interesting uh, little thing to note about the British carriers as opposed to the American supercarriers. They're jump carriers. And the difference between the two is that uh, the jump carriers have a ramp at the end. um, Whereas the U.S. supercarriers, all of them have the catapult system. Which is where you basically uh, have steam-powered... How do I put it? Uh, A steam-powered mechanical hook that accelerates the aircraft so that you don't need the ramp uh so uh, because if you move it fast enough the propulsion from the wings the lift there we go the lift from the wings can get it up as opposed to relying solely on the power of the engine and apparently it has a whole bunch of benefits with regards to the range that your planes can operate and saving fuel which is pretty important during say a wartime scenario So that was an interesting thing that I know between their carriers and ours. uh, And naturally, the catapult system is going to be a bit more expensive. So we'll see where Britain goes, if they're going to stick to the jump or if they're going to go with the catapult eventually at some point in the future. Uh, Also, their supercarrier is not nuclear, like damn near all of the U.S. ships are. Uh, So it's another cost-saving measure... Or at the very least it would appear Uh, The nuclear ships can operate for longer uh, Without being refueled and really it's just a matter of keeping the crew alive Uh, But the Royal Navy is on its own now So all of its development is gonna be coming from threats to Britain and Those threats are probably going to include the EU from this point moving forward and We'll see how they respond now as in regards to them sending the carrier to the south china sea i th- i see it as them how do i put it i see it as them reasserting their influence in the region cuz the british used to own malaysia singapore they used to own all of india and uh, australia and new zealand used to be colonies of the british so They're obviously going to have friendly ports in Australia and New Zealand, and if I'm not mistaken, they already do have access to that international uh, port that the U.S. built in the Philippines, and all of this just ties into the greater theme of the U.S. pulling back and letting other people deal with these problems, Uh, and the British is a major, the British is, the British are a major player and the fact that they're trying to exert influence this far away, um, says that they're going to be involved in this region, uh, if they're going to send a supercarrier here. And it's probably a great... uh, uh, I was going to say a great thing, but it's probably going to be a mixed bag for India, who is going to appreciate the strategic help uh, from their former colonial master, but I, I don't imagine that they're going to be too happy about the British specifically showing up. Especially if the Americans are increasingly disappearing from the scene. Um. So anyway. The British. Rule Britannia. The British are back in Asia. We'll see where they go. We'll see where they go. It's definitely going to be something that the Chinese are going to have to factor in with their... uh. Plans of asserting their own influence in the South China Sea. Uh, but yet another list is going to be added onto the allies that India can count on in their struggle with the Chinese. The real Cold War 2.0. Uh, you know, we intellectuals know it. The rest of the world has yet to catch on. And when they do, we all have, will have back bragging rights. So there's that. But. The British are back. The British are back. Now, there were questions with regards to the deal. Uh, Some things like Northern Ireland is still in question. Um, It's the first, and I see this as the first territorial dispute between the British. uh, Well, not between the British, but of an independent Britain. It's the first territorial dispute. Um, And personally, the way I see it, you can't have a border between Ireland and Northern Ireland if it's all Northern Ireland. If you catch my drift, <laughs> uh, we could be looking at a potential annexation of Ireland. we, we I don't know. We, we'll see where that goes. I don't think the British are there quite yet, but they fought a war over the Falklands. They fought a war over the Falklands. That's all I'll say. But so begins... The EU's perpetual secession crisis. Now, I've talked about this in the number of instances where I brought up the EU, but it's official now that this is the beginning, because the British are actually out now. So every day that goes by, um, especially now when there's not like some massive recession caused by Brexit, um... It looks like the British are going to be able to get off to at least a walking start. So, uh, their economy should start to do decently well for itself. And they don't have to do great by themselves, but you can do decently well. And if Europe is constantly imposing new restrictions on themselves, then the relative power between the British and Europe, well, people are going to look at that and go, wow. We should be more like Britain because, and I'll draw this back to the point of the relative power of nations. Britain doesn't have to advance at double the pace of Europe um, to be perceived as being moving at double the pace of Europe. All it would require is for Britain to be moving at a certain pace and for Europe to be falling at an equal pace. And suddenly, from the perspective of the Europeans, the British are just zooming ahead. And they're going to be questioning, well, why are we a part of this system if the British are doing so well by themselves? <clears throat> and the I, I figure, I'd care to wager that the European government isn't going to have a, an answer to that question. And there are already multiple secessionist movements that are near critical mass, that have been near critical mass since Brexit itself happened four years ago. And I don't expect those uh, Euro sceptic sentiments to go away, especially if the country that did it, Britain, the country that actually left, if they're doing well for themselves. So from this point onward, the question is no longer a Brexit, but who will follow in Britain's footsteps? And I imagine it's going to happen in sometime in the near future. Sometime in the near future, when Britain's doing pretty decent for itself, especially as it grabs up all these trade deals with other countries, uh, very quickly, too. These, very quickly, uh, faster than the European Union uh, is able to grab up trade deals in most instances. Now, the EU has established a, a trade agreement with the chinese i believe so there is that but the british can do that too so from this point moving forward all eyes are going to be on europe and not britain because this is going to be europe's response how will the europeans react to a strong independent britain who is doing well for itself and my personal belief is that the europeans are going to begin questioning harder the Validity of a European Union or even the necessity of a European Union and When that starts to happen, I don't think you're gonna be able to put that I don't think you're gonna be able to put that back in the box and It's gonna unravel Europe as a united concept and we're gonna see once again Europe, independent European powers struggling for influence over the continent now, that'll mean politics, that'll mean cunning deals, and that's going to mean war. But that's the direction I see heading for, that's the direction I see Europe heading towards. Now, they're not going to go straight to war, but if countries acting in their self-interest they are going to clash. And, can you blame them? So, that's move. that's Europe. Uh, Definitely see some interesting things happening there uh, in the near future. Potentially the return of uh, the European powder keg. But uh, we have another powder keg to talk about in this episode. And that is the Middle East. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Alright, and we are back. We're going to get into the Middle Eastern powder keg in just a moment. But I do have another story that I want to get into before we go to that. And then we'll end off today talking a little bit about the coming weeks in America. But um, uh, one of the interesting things that I saw was an a new African free trade zone is now in effect. Uh, the talks for this agreement began in 2015. Uh, you know, in ancient history, you know. <laughs> 2020, it lasted for a solid millennium by itself, but, but way back in antiquity 2015, during the African Union Summit in South Africa, uh, the deal that they talked about back then incorporated the East African community, uh, which some would know better as the East African Federation. Uh, this talk, There was talk about a union between uh, Kenya and uganda rwanda uh rwanda tanzania i believe checking checking i got my map yes tanzania all right so kenya uganda tanzania rwanda burundi and south sudan uh made up that eastern east african community and there was talk about a potential union between the countries But it appears that they're going for something larger, or at the very least, economically larger. Uh, There was the... Because it's not just them who was a part of this massive trade deal. uh, The common market for Eastern and Southern Africa, which encompasses the previous countries, um, and a lot of... uh, How do I put it? The Egypt-Sudan area it encompasses a lot of the East African coast, and... Encompasses a lot of the southern African countries as well. Uh, the southern African development community is the third group, and this one's more uh, regional to southern Africa. So these three coalitions of countries, which is based on the economy, have come together uh, for this major African free trade zone. And the total list of countries in the deal I uh, shall now read. It is Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Congo. that's the Democratic Republic of Congo. Angola, Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Nam Namib- Namibia Namibia? Namibia. Oh, I thought it was Namibia, but it's Namibia. Uh, so, Namibia, Madagascar, and South Africa. All right. Uh, excuse me for that. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was Namibia, like Zambia, but it's Namibia. That's interesting. Uh, now, although the combined GDP of this block uh, of many countries spanning uh, basically half of Africa. Uh, the combined GDP, uh, while it only amounts to around six hundred and twenty-four billion, and I say only uh, from the very, very privileged and appreciated position as a U.S. citizen, where <clears throat> you know our twenty-two trillion. But uh, who, who's, who's comparing? Who's making comparisons? But anyway, so even though it's about half of a trillion in USD. Uh, The block is rich in natural resources and has a vast potential market due to the hundreds of millions of people living in these, just these countries alone, uh, with other African countries that can potentially be added to the agreement later. Now, I did the research and manually looked up the individual populations of each country. Uh, did I name Libya? Okay, I named Libya, just making sure. And combined, they have 720 million people uh, out of the 1.2 billion people that live in Africa. So, not just half of Africa in term geographic term, but basically half of Africa, actually a little over half of Africa in terms of population. So, There is a massive market to be had here, especially if this were to improve the lives and socioeconomic wealth of the position, the position, let me stop. If this were to improve the wealth and standard of living of the people living in these countries to where the market grows because the 720 million people have more money to spend, it could be huge, really huge. I see a major natural resource export block uh, similar to how OPEC and OPEC plus are uh, a, 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 Come on now an export block a natural resource export block, but they're centered on oil Whereas this I see the potential for a lot more than just oil But also oil because there are countries here that have oil. Uh, I believe Egypt and Angola yes Egypt and Angola I believe have oil I could be wrong here I think Congo has oil as well so there is oil to be had here and eat lots of economic there's lots of economic potential South Africa is a really good port uh, Angola is attempting to build their own port infrastructure um, and The only real challenge would be getting through the Central African jungles uh, of Congo, but with this many countries pooling their resources, you could see uh, those jungles disappear magically uh, to build the necessary infrastructure to get from Central Africa to the coasts uh, and build Modern port infrastructure on the coast to export these natural resources, and even just the infrastructure within Africa to get to the resources. Uh, and we could see their wealth grow from there. This is potentially huge. I, I won't understate how big this could be, and especially when you look at the wider picture that is foreign powers that are going to be investing in these places, namely China. Uh, and again, this is, uh, not only half of Africa, so there is the potential that they could get more African nations on board, like maybe Algeria or Nigeria or say some of the other West, Western African States. Uh, we'll see about that, but Nigeria and Algeria would be pretty big gains to make, um, uh, cause they're pretty big on their own. And they do have oil as well. So that would increase their influence as an oil exporting block on top of being a natural resource exporting block. Um, And of the many countries that are potentially there for foreign investment, China is already number one uh, in terms of foreign investment. uh, Because Africa is a part of their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, where they're giving out massive loans to these places. Uh, this is part of the naval route of the Belt and Road. Uh, East Af- it's mainly China's influence is mainly on East Africa, and for obvious reasons, uh, the if China were to go from where China is through the Straits of Malacca around India, the closest point of Africa is East Africa. So that's where they're doing most of their trading with, and that's where they're building most of their influence, and they're building modern port and ports and infrastructure, and they're putting Chinese businesses there. And combine that with this massive block, and you could see Chinese influence either grow or shrink. But regardless, the Chinese investment is going to be there. And it's probably going to be very helpful to these people living here. Uh, assuming that the Chinese don't crowd them out and force Chinese people to be the businesses and... Uh, Don't allow them to be there, but it appears that the Chinese aren't doing too much of that. So there is great potential here very very vast potential Uh, and it's uh, another great potential here is to bring a Development and stability to a semi-stable region of the world Uh, and namely that would be Sudan and Congo And Rwanda, Uh, there's lots of ethnic violence in Central Africa, and there's an active genocide in Angola, but we could see something beautiful happen should these countries embrace economic development and prosperity. So, there there is a pretty nice light at the end of this tunnel that we called 2020 and that Africa has called most of its history. So... There is that and they're probably going to be very they're probably going to have good pro-china sympathies. So, there's a nice soft power touch to the Chinese. But now we're going to get into the Iranian powder keg. We I touched up on the European powder keg, the return of it. But I'm going to talk now about the ramping up of the Middle Eastern powder keg because Iran has resumed 20% uranium enrichment at its underground nuclear site in Fordow. Now, this is a site that likely has air defenses nearby. I talked about how they moved air defenses to their nuclear sites after um, the bombardment of the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. So, it's probably a well-defended location, given it's a high-priority target for anybody seeking to sabotage Iran. But... My topic that I want to get on for this is not necessarily whether or not Iran is going to build the bomb. Because I'm pretty sure they will, if for nothing else, the politics of being a nuclear power. Uh, Well, that would put them on rough parity with Israel, who has nuclear missiles that it could fire at the Iranians at any moment. Uh, The Iranians would probably have... uh, a device more like Hiroshima and Nagasaki before they get something like a modern ICBM, but just the having the bomb is going to be huge, especially for their neighbors. Uh, not so much for Pakistan. Pakistan has a hundred over a hundred nukes on its own, and these are missiles and the Pakistanis are not worried. Uh, well, maybe they are, but not worried about being annihilated by Iran because they could flatten Iran. The real worry is proliferation. That's what I want to get into. Because Iran is dedicated to this. They're going to build the bomb. All right. Well, We can talk about the benefits of civilian nuclear power. And there are legitimate benefits. Especially if they're not able to get oil revenues because of all those sanctions. And they have to start laying people off at their oil facilities. And they start having to import oil from other countries. And you heard that right, Iran is actually an oil net importer right now, despite being, despite sitting on massive reserves of oil and knowing where those reserves are and actually tapping those reserves right now. But due to all the sanctions, they can't export, so they're a net importer of oil right now. So they're beholden to other people's oil production. And I don't think that they very much appreciate that or the implications that could come with that. So I see them moving towards nuclear power and reserving the oil for essentials like fuel, you know, because we don't have nuclear powered cars right now. So maybe maybe they'll go down the China route where they're trying to rush for electric cars. I don't see Iran getting Iran. I don't see Iran getting there any time faster than the Chinese. So for the time being, oil is going to be their a necessity for them to keep, but the less that they can rely on energy derived from oil, the better. So I see them having very strong benefits uh, with regards to nuclear power, but let's be honest with ourselves, they're going to get the bomb. So what does that mean? Well, it's not so much what it means with regards to what Iran's going to do. The important thing is what their neighbors are going to do. I do not expect Afghanistan to get an atomic bomb. We'll throw that out. I do not expect Turkmenistan to get an atomic bomb. We'll throw that out. Azerbaijan will not be allowed to have an atomic bomb. (laughs) But the Russians already do. So there's no change there especially given that Azerbaijan used to be a part of Russian territory anyway. There's no real change. Um, The change is going to come with regards to the United Arab Emirates, Arabia, Israel, maybe even Iraq and Syria, and Turkey. And the main players that I'm looking at is Israel, Arabia, and Turkey. Because these are the three nations that have the capability to do it right now. Uh, Iraq probably could have attempted it before the Iraq War, the second one, or the first one for that matter. Uh, They probably could have attempted it before the first Iraq War. Syria probably could have attempted it before their civil war. Uh, But those two I see are largely out of the picture right now with regards to building a nuclear device. When that leaves, Israel, who already has nukes, they deny them, but they have them. We we know that they have them. Uh, That leaves Arabia, who has the money and wealth to start up their own nuclear program with plenty of money just sitting by to mass-produce nukes. And that leaves the United Arab Emirates, who's in a similar position, but closer to Iran. Um, And that's important because if Iran does build a Hiroshima, Nagasaki-style atomic bomb, uh, it's going to be carried by bomber plane. And that means they're going to be limited to the range of their bombers, which means the things that are closer to Iran are going to have a higher chance of getting hit by an Iranian nuke, and that means almost automatically the United Arab Emirates is in danger, especially given that they have like very few major cities. Dubai is like it. Take out Dubai, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but. Another potential target for an Iranian nuclear bomb would be the Abqaiq, uh, the Gouar. There we go, the Gouar superfields in Arabia, uh, the largest, the largest of their kind, really, and they're really close to the uh, Arabians. No, the Persian Gulf. There we go, making sure I'm getting my geography right. That oil facility is really close to the Persian Gulf, which means it's really close to Persia, or as we like to call it, Iran. If Iran has a nuke, the, even with the limited range of, uh, say, a bomber craft, um, they could hit that. Uh, it would It's very large, so it would take nothing short of a, a nuke to take all that oil offline immediately. But if Iran has a nuke, then they can use one. And if nuclear warfare the limited degree that we've seen has taught us anything nukes are only allowed against countries that don't have them Yeah, Japan didn't have nukes, but America did boom Uh, Then the question of retaliation uh, Comes into play only after the enemy in question has nukes so Iran Having nukes has to look at the other players who can build them. We talked about Israel, who already has them, and would more than likely retaliate with all of them against Iran if they had to. The UAE and Arabia, can they have the money to start uh, trying to catch up if push comes to shove. And there have been talk, namely from Peter Zion, that the Arabians could just purchase a nuke from Pakistan. So, that's kind of in the picture. I don't know how willing the Pakistanis would be for that, unless they had, like, a major falling out with Iran. But that is technically on the table. But Turkey is another one. They have a strong industrial base. They're trying to build up a strong domestic military uh, industry. And I'd imagine that if Iran builds a nuclear device, well, then they're going to want a nuclear device and they can, with how belligerent they've been in their neighborhood, I'd imagine that they would threaten the use of that nuclear device against countries that didn't do what they want. And given how they keep engaging, uh, militarily, uh, not necessarily with their military, but with mercenaries and militants, uh... Countries would be more inclined to believe what Turkey has to say on that matter uh, than someone else Like say Israel who isn't threatening to use its nukes against others its neighbors or at least not that I know of So the question of an Iranian nuke is not what the Iranians are gonna do we can pretty We can see pretty clearly where their targets would be uh, You you touch Israel with the nuking the sheer small size of the country makes sure that the nuke has maximum damage uh, if you can get past their air defenses but they're far away farther away than arabian oil facilities farther away than dubai so there's that Uh, so that's why the question of an iranian nuke is more so on their neighbors and not on iran itself because iran is limited But its neighbors aren't so much... Well, not even close to being as limited as Iran is. They don't have sanctions on them. Turkey just barely got touched with sanctions that have only just now been levied against them. Uh, And they're probably going to try to push through those sanctions. All of Iran's neighbors are more capable with regards to nuclear weapons than Iran. So the proliferation question is what we want to look at especially if you want to look even wider out because if the middle east starts arming uh who's to stop countries adjacent to the middle east from arming themselves as well because pakistan already has nukes india already has nukes china already has nukes russia already has nukes britain and france do so Do you get an Italian nuclear program? Do you get a Greek nuclear program? Who knows? That's the, but that's the question that we're gonna have to be asking ourselves the closer that Iran gets to a functional nuclear device. What will their neighbors do? Because all of their neighbors, I wanna really drive this home, are more capable Of establishing nuclear programs and getting a nuclear device than Iran is. uh, If for no reason other than the fact that they don't have sanctions holding them back. And that goes for Arabia. That goes for the United Arab Emirates. That goes for Israel, who already has nukes. And that goes for Turkey, who even though they're just now getting hit with sanctions, they're much larger. Uh, Well, not much larger than Iran. They're roughly similar in size, uh, population-wise, to Iran. But they're there. They're a major player. And their domestic industry is about as robust, if not more so, than Iran itself. So, if Iran can get a nuke under sanctions, what are countries that are not sanctioned going to do when it has it? That's the question we're going to be asking moving forward. Um... And time will tell if I'm right or if I'm wrong. But now we're going to we're gonna touch up on America and then getting to our closing thoughts in just a minute. All right, we're back. I'm going to touch up on America and then getting to our closing thoughts. Uh, uh, you know, with January 6th coming up, they're supposed to be counting, well, certifying uh, electoral votes. Apparently, they're going to go to Pence. There's talk about Pence uh, flat out denying Joe Biden electors and whatnot, but my thing, well, I get into that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has won the Speaker of the House again, and an interesting thing about that is that there was a major movement on the left for progressive Congress members to withhold their vote for Nancy Pelosi unless she put out a uh, unless she put Medicare for All up for a vote on the House floor. Now that that didn't happen, and Nancy Pelosi has just won her speakership, I believe it happened yesterday on Sunday, um, so that movement is now effectively been killed, because the whole goal was to use the leverage that progressive uh, House members had, due to the slim majority that the Democrats have in the Congress, uh, to force Pelosi to do what they wanted. They did not do that. So now their leverage is effectively gone, uh, at least for now, Uh, because there's still a very, very slim majority that the Democrats hold, and that slim majority uh, isn't going to really change, at least not in the Democrats' favor anytime soon. Uh, The Republicans have more state legislatures, and they're probably going to do redistricting in favor of more Republican candidates. And more Republican areas to allow Republicans to take control of the House easier. Um, and we've talked about that before. So I do expect that majority to get narrowed down uh, to near non-existence. If not a straight up Republican majority um, moving forward. Because 2020 was a census year. And with so many people moving around. We're in the midst of a real, we're in the midst of really, really changing times here in America. Uh, You have massive demographic movements uh, as people flee certain states in favor of others. Uh, Swing states are uh, seemingly no longer swing states anymore. Um, It's a mess. Now, Peter Zion, uh, uh, I am an avid fan of his work. He brought this up. Uh, actually years ago, uh, years ago, he brought up that the two party system is offline right now and anybody paying attention to them can see that. So just another thing about him being right, even though I have my disagreements on some things, but, and, you know, that's the reason I follow Peter Zion so avidly. But for, from what I can see here in America, we are in the midst of a, a revolution, All right. Now, it seems crazy when you say it right now, and it's kind of hard to see uh, since we are on the ground level just looking at everything, because when you look in the past, it's kind of like a bird's eye view. You can see everything. You can see everyone's perspective. You can see uh, what certain people were doing and what other people were doing at the same time and how that clash and how it ended up. We can use hindsight. We don't have hindsight right now. So it's really, really hard to see, but I believe we're in the midst of a revolution in America, and it has yet to be determined if it'll be a more a socialist revolution, where the government will have more power indefinitely uh, over our economic systems and our lives, uh, or if it'll be a second American revolution where government authority over the individual is rejected in favor of a more decentralized approach to economy and life social life Um, constitutionalism versus governors being able to violate that because of an emergency Um, now me being in favor uh, i'm obviously going to be more in favor of the second american revolution um, given my the development of my own political views over the course of this last year uh, especially with regards to the socialism versus capitalism debate, I have sided unequivocally with capitalism, because I, uh, after learning about the two ideologies, uh, came to the conclusion that capitalism was about the individual. And I respect individual rights, and If and I realize that a collective is nothing more than a group of individuals. You protect the rights of the individual, and then you have collective the rights of the collective protected and just looking at the failures multiple failures of government over the past year i don't want these people to have power now that being said i'll go full disclosure and say that i do want trump to pull through i want him to pull through so that's the full disclosure there um but i do want on top of that The concerns of fraud to either be proven false and put to rest or if proven right, I want something to be done about it because the country is going to need that closure moving forward, Uh, especially if some tomfoolery goes down and Trump does manage to win re-election. People are going to go crazy. I I expect tomfoolery and that's my new favorite term nowadays. I expect some tomfoolery. The likes of which we have never seen before, I expect all hell is going to break loose, it's going to be let loose upon the earth, Uh, (laughs) but my eyes right now for the end of all this uh, is hopefully on January 20th, which is inauguration day, but personally I anticipate this going on into the spring, Uh, so March-April territory. I have taken steps with regards to my finances accordingly. And, yeah, I expect chaos. I expect chaos, especially if there's supposed to be hundreds of thousands of people en route to DC. uh, Either as we speak or in the coming days uh, ahead of the January 6th uh, tally of the electoral votes, there are a couple senators, I believe. 12 or 13 of them uh, that are breaking ranks with the majority leader of the Senate, which is Mitch McConnell Republican. Uh, There are Republican senators who are basically standing up and saying that they're going to contest the election. And the importance of them specifically is because there were like over a hundred house members that already did that, but you can't get the two hour debate per contested state. Unless one person in the House and one person in the Senate object. So now, and the first one I believe was Josh Hawley. He was the first to break ranks. And then 12 others followed him with Ted Cruz being among them. And there's probably going to be more that follow. But I expect chaos in the streets of D.C., well, not not even in the streets of D.C. At least not until the Trump supporters go home, which is when more violent, or when the when night falls. Basically, when every city gets more dangerous. Um, but I expect chaos. That's what I expect. If you're living in America, you're probably we're already expecting the same. Uh, but I do hope you've all prepared, and you know, tried your best to insulate yourselves from the coming chaos. There's a lot of other factors in play, not just with the election, but with regards to uh, the economy and the central bank printing all this money. Uh, it's making the dollar worth less. And I bought some silver the other day, and it was like 37 per ounce. $37 per ounce. But literally just last summer, when I was first contemplating getting silver, um, it was like $26 an ounce. 26 And it's 37 now. And that's not silver getting more expensive. It's the dollar getting weaker. It got worth $10 less in just not even a year because it was last summer. We're not... In a six months, it became worth $10 less. But, uh, no wonder Bitcoin is shooting up right now. But, I am taking steps to protect my finances. I hope you do the same, uh, especially if you're living in America. Um, I don't know what to expect moving forward. I'll, I'll just be straight up with you. I don't know what's going to happen in these coming weeks. I do hope we get closure on this election. Uh, But there's a reason I've been calling it election century but That being said I have told you that the world is changing But I guess the important takeaway is that it doesn't it's not limited to the rest of the world It's it's including America and there are lots of lots of forces in motion. There are lots of places uh, We talked yesterday how every little bit counts and who wins this election is going to be a big one. Whether or not Iran gets a nuclear device is going to determine whether or not we see uh, nuclear proliferation in the Middle East from its more powerful and richer neighbors. Uh, we could see some we could see some craziness between the British and the EU, where the Royal Navy does some ridiculous uh, naval battle against the EU for us as and secures naval dominance for the next hundred years, uh, like they did with um, in both of the world wars, and by world wars I mean World War One and the Napoleonic Wars, where they did that. So, the world is in a really weird place, and I don't expect it to get normal, at least not for a while. And by normal, I mean countries acting norm- like countries uh, and the stronger countries having the influence to exert their, to exert with their will over others, uh, there are a few of them that have that ability, the great powers, um. But I uh, I I don't know I don't know I I'll just I'll just see where we go and I'll try to do my best to paint the broader picture using all of the events of the week prior. But that being said, that was all I have today. So I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, 2020 is over and we have a whole bunch of new stuff ahead of us. Some good, some bad, some really, really weird and uncertain. But uncertainty aside, we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host. Hi, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.